This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Michael Riley to the program. Hello, Michael. Hello there, Bob. Good to have you on the program. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. Michael Riley grew up in Pandersonville, New York, along the Mohawk River Erie Canal, and now lives in Port Byron, which used to be a port on the Erie Canal up in Cayuga County. That's maybe another story, but who knows? Maybe we'll uh, get into it. Uh, But Michael joins us now to discuss his book. Michael Riley is author of the book Bridge Dams on the Mohawk, David A. Watts' Marvelous Creation. Uh, Michael Riley is president of the American Canal Society and a board member of the Canal Society of New York State. He writes a history column for the Auburn Citizen newspaper. Well, here's my first question, uh, Michael. What is a bridge dam? (laughs) The bridge dams are those marvelous structures you see in the Mohawk Valley. Um, they're strictly, uh, there's a couple outside the Mohawk Valley, but they're, when you're driving along the thruway or if you're driving along Route 5 or 5S, you see these large green bridges spanning the Mohawk River. Um, there's one in Rotterdam Junction, there's one in Cranesville, there's one in Amsterdam at Guy Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are a type of navigation dam. Um, so the, what happens is the, the bridge holds the dam framework. And so they can raise and lower the uh, the dams and get them out of the way of the uh, the ice and the heavy flows in the Mohawk. Um, so they're a very unique structure. Um, they're not found anywhere else in the world. Um, at one time they were very much in fashion, but now they're uh, they're kind of antiques. And um, I think we're very lucky to have them in the Mohawk Valley. Mm. And you've kind of did, but how do, how do they work, and what do they do? Well, the whole purpose of them was um, because, I mean, everybody in the Mohawk Valley is very well aware of the fact that the Mohawk Valley, you know, you have these great floods. um, You have in the wintertime, you have these huge ice chunks that form. And so, you know, if if you go way back in time um, when they, they were thinking about building the Erie Canal, I mean, the Mohawk River was a natural corridor. It's a it's a west east uh, running river. It sort of cuts through the, um, the the mountain chain, and it's a it's a very level route to get from the the Hudson River to the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. But they knew. I mean, the, the the earlier people knew that trying to make use of that river to make it a, a, a usable stream for large barges. Um, would be impossible. So that's why he built the, the, the Erie Canal, the original Erie Canal, alongside the river. Um, then in about the 1900s, they decided that they would um, make use of the river again. They thought that they had the technology, they had the, um, the materials, the steel work and the iron work, and they would make use of the river again. So they took the, they just basically moved the Mohawk, or the Erie Canal into the Mohawk River by using these dams. And um, to get away from the problem of having these ice flows wipe out any type of fixed dam that they might build in the river. They just decided to use this, this one dam that they found in the um, Czech Republic. Um, they decided that they would use this as a model and they would hang the dam from these bridges. So the bridge work that you see, you know, I remember as a kid, I'd be driving by and I'd say to my father, why is that bridge there? Why is there no, you know, why can't we drive across it? And he said, well, they, they were thinking about building a bridge, but they, 
they didn't, you know, they just never used them. And that wasn't exactly correct. So they, um, but the, the bridge itself is the framework that holds the dam. And I, I think they, it's well publicized. They, they, they alert everybody in the springtime that they're going to lower the dams. And they, and what they do is they lower these, these big arms that come down from the dam, from the bridge, and they rest against a concrete sill in the river. And then they lower these big steel plates, these pans they call them. They get lowered down one at a time, and they slowly back up the water. And when the dams are all in place, they have these navigation pools, are called, and what happens, and that allows the, the boats to safely use the river. Mm. If What did you call the metal plates? You said... Uh, they call them pans. Um, early days, um, if, when I was doing my first study, they always called them the bully gates. And uh, it was after a French engineer. And, um, and if you look back at the early days of uh, when they're, they're building the, the barge canal through the Mohawk, um, they're always calling them bully gates. They're calling them bridge dams with bully gates. And uh, but nowadays, they, they tend to call them pans. And they're the big mm-hmm. steel. They're, they're about 10 foot tall and about 30 foot wide. And they're just these very large steel plates that they, they slowly mm-hmm. can lower into the water. And they just... They just slowly back up the river, so that's why in the winter time when you see the river, it's it, you can almost see like you know it almost looks like you can walk across it because it's so shallow. You can see all the rocks and you and you see a lot of the dirt from the um, you know where stuff's not growing, and then in the summertime you'll see that the water's back up to a certain level, and it's all very beautiful looking because the water's up to the trees and you know you have these very nice level. Um, pools of water for the boats to use. Now, was Boulet uh, the the Frenchman who developed that those metal plate things? Is that the idea? Or? Yeah, yeah. The, um, the the whole my the purpose. The reason I did this book was I, I um, was I made a post one day on Facebook, and um, I was I was down there looking at the the new park there, uh, Lock Thirteen, that's on the throughway. And there's a beautiful park there at the Thruway and the, and the Canal Corporation had built um, at the Welcome Center there. And I went over and I snapped a picture of uh, Lock 13 there, and I, I made a post, and I said, here is the, the, uh, one of these bridge dams, and the only place you can find them in the world is on the Mohawk River. And I had a friend from, who was the president of the Canadian Canal Society, and he wrote to me and said, oh, not so fast. He says, these are... Um, there is a, one of these, at least in, in, in Manitoba, and that got me thinking. And then I went to a, um, a World Canals Conference in Syracuse, and lo and behold, here's another picture of a, a one in Canada. So I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, what's going on here? Is this the only ones? Is, 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 are there more of these? How many of these are, are still in use? And that's what started this book about two years ago. It started basically as a little article I was going to write. And it just kept expanding and expanding the more I learned and the more fascinating it came. So, you know, it took two years to do this. Mm. But the, the bridge dams were their, their creation. They started about 1870 um, when a French engineer um, des- designed them for a situation very much like the Mohawk River. You had a very fast-moving river during the springtime with heavy flows. Um, it had a very rocky bottom. And um, he knew that the current... Uh, dams in use at the time, these, these what they called trestle dams, uh, which had been in use since the 1830s, th- he knew they would not hold up. So they, um, so they, 
they, he decided he would hang these this dam from the bridges, and lo and behold, about 30 years later, when the when the Bards Canal, when the engineers are thinking about Bards Canal, they they came along and said that's what we need right there, and they um, improved on the design, and, um, and brought them to New York State. Hmm. We're talking with um, Mike Riley, his book about bridge dams on the Mohawk River. Uh, let me go back to your epiphany, if you will. You said you got you took the picture of Lock 13, which is uh, goes between Randall on the south side and, and Yost on the north side. Um, well, two things. Uh, I, my mother was born in Randall. In fact, she was born in 1913, which uh, you uh, say in your book was the year of a big flood uh, when they were building uh, the uh, Barge Canal uh, and that the lock tender risked his life. I think his name was James Breslin, and uh, he was able to do something to help save that dam. Yes, uh, it's it's a fascinating story that I just happened to come across. Um, in 1913, there was this huge winter storm that came up from the Gulf, and it's much like we're seeing today with the weather pattern, where there's just this stream of moisture coming up from the Gulf, and this and the storm was coming up, and unbeknownst to the the, the people who were building the Bards Canal. Um, they didn't know the storm was on its way, and they started lowering the gates at, at Yost and at Tribes Hill. And the reason they were lowering it is because the, the dam was ready, but the, the river itself still had to be dredged. And the contractor, was, he wanted to get an early start, so he wrote to the state and said, can we get an early start, get in there and get going um, by lowering the dam so I have a, a pool of water which to float my dredge. And the state said, okay, you know, there's no ice in the river. We're, we're good to go. And so they, they started lowering the dams at Yost, which is Lock 13, and at Tribes Hill, which is Lock 12. And they're, they're lowering them down. And meanwhile, this, um, this, this floodwaters are coming from the, you know, from the west. It's, just, it's almost like a, you couldn't rate it any, any better. Um, the, 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 the rains are coming. The floodwaters coming. So they, they have the dams about halfway down, and they notice the water is rising very quickly in the river. And so they decide, okay, let's stop. Let's leave the lower set of gates, the pans, in the water, but we'll raise the upper set, and that'll, that'll just, you know, let the water spill over. And so they, they did that. They left the dams in place, and they went home, and they came back the next morning, and, and they, the, all the debris that had washed down the river from the contractors, you've got to remember that the, uh, the entire Mohawk Valley is under construction at the time. There, there's every lock, every docking wall, there, every bridge, there's some contractor in there building something. So all this debris washes down the river, and, and collects against this dam at Yost. And so they come back in the morning and they find that the entire structure, the, the lock, the, the walls, everything are under two feet of water. And, and the, the bridge itself, the dam's out in the middle of the river sort of as its own island. And they don't know what they're going to do. So they, um, somehow they get, away, they get around from the Randall side to the, to the, to the north side of the river. And uh, they, ha- they find a little rowboat there. And, and this guy takes this rowboat, he, he jumps in it, he paddles himself out into the flood, into the debris, and he's got like one chance to, to grab a hold of the chains that are the hanging down before the boat gets swept into the debris and gets swept in and he gets killed. He, he jumps in, this James Breslin does this, he jumps up, 
and he and he gets a hold of the cane. He climbs up the dam, and then he makes it. So the next guy says, "Well, if he made it, I can make it." So they they pull the boat back. They must have had a rope or something. They pull the boat back, and they and the and the next guy does the same thing. It's it's, it's hard to believe anybody <laughs> nowadays would do something like that. And then what they do is they fire up the the the, the steam winch, which is up on the bridge, and they get a boatswain's chair and they just start hauling people from the train tracks that are there on the north side of the river. The guys are standing there, and they just haul these guys up one at a time up to the dam, and then they just spend the next two days pulling debris out of the dam trying to get the, the floodwaters to go down. Wow. And um, I thought it was a fascinating story. It's it's um, I, I tried to find the, the Breslin family. I did find I, – I, I go on. I went on Ancestry and I looked for family trees, and I I was able to get a hold of her granddaughter. And that story had never made it down through mm-hmm. um, the family lore. And I asked for a picture of James Breslin, and I could never find one. So it's um, he's just just a sort of little moment in history that you know adds a little bit of a human element to these dams. We're talking with Michael Riley, author of the book Bridge Dams on the Mohawk, subtitled David A. Watts' Marvelous Creation. I haven't asked about him. Who's he? <laughs> David Watt was a, um, an English-born engineer. He, um, he came over to the United States I think around the uh, 1890s. I'm not quite sure. I mean, he's, he's sort of shrouded in mystery. Um, he worked with a, a man um, named Benjamin Franklin Thomas, B.F. Thomas, who was a, an older man, sort of his mentor, and they were working on movable dams. Um, these were being built throughout the Ohio Valley system, the Kentucky rivers. Um, there were a different type of movable dam that I talked about before. They were a, a trestle dam, so they would, um, or a, a, a Shinoe dam. So they, they were a type of, different type of movable dam, but they were doing the same purpose. They were trying to mm-hmm. make all these rivers into navigable canals. And uh, it's, it's a term called canalizing the river. And so he was, he was working when the uh, New York State passed the voters in 1903. They passed this, um, the resolution, the, the law to authorize the building of the Barge Canal. And the state, knowing the unique problems with the Mohawk River, went looking for the best experts they could find. And they came across this David Alexander Watt, or D.A. Watt. And uh, he was a young man, a young engineer. And um, they, they hired him on, and he was the guy who designed those bridges, or the dams, the bridges. Um, he designed many facets of the Bards Canal. Um, he never mar- well, he married, but he never had kids, and I've never been able to find any members of his family. And I searched for two years trying to put a, put a picture, because I always like to put a face with the, the people mm-hmm. I'm investigating. And after two years, I finally found a picture of the man, which I included in the book. Um, in his obituary, he never talk about himself. He talks about these bridges, the, the Bards Canal work that he did. So he was obviously very you know, proud of the work that he had done canalizing the, the, the Mohawk Valley. <laughs> We're talking with Michael Riley. We'll be back with him in just a moment. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and we depend on your contributions to keep the podcast going. You can go to this website, gofundme.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash 
historians, and you can donate online. If you'd rather make a donation by mail, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Really enjoying uh, finding out information from our guest, uh, Mike Riley, author of the book Bridge Dams on the Mohawk, David A. Watts, a marvelous creation. One thing that occurred to me reading in your in your book about how the river was canalized, as you say, I mean, you and I, because uh, you grew up in our area, not up in Port Byron, you grew up around Pattersonville, and I grew up in Amsterdam, and so when we, all our lives, uh, what exists in the Mohawk River with these uh, bridge dams is uh, is what we're used to. You know, I just wonder, I mean, this maybe is kind of a dumb question, what was it like before the, you know, when you had the Erie Canal and you also had the river. I mean, the river probably still flooded and, and so forth, or in, and you still had to cross the river. Uh, I wonder if that was an easier time to live or harder. I'm, I'm always, uh, when I think about it, I always think about um, Drums Along the Mohawk, the movie with Henry Fonda, and uh, where they show them sort of like running across the river, how, how shallow it was at the time. And uh, even though that was more up by Herkimer, um, the river itself was a very shallow river. Um, it has a huge watershed. It goes all the way down into the Catskill Mountains. It goes all the way up into the Adirondacks. Uh, the headwaters are up by Boonville. Um, so it has this huge watershed, and it's a very flashy stream. So even though like the, the, the cities of Amsterdam and Schenectady had built along it, they must have expected that every spring that was going to flood. And, um, you know, but I found some pictures of them when they were building the Barge Canal. And, you know, because you have all these pictures of the Erie Canal during the late 1800s, early 1900s, but you don't see a lot of the the Mohawk River because I, I don't think it was as exciting. So during the building of the Barge Canal, you do get some images of the original Mohawk River. And it's a very shallow, it's a very wide stream. Um, has a huge uh, a valley across, so it's, you know, when it does flood, it just, you know, the water comes up to a certain level, reaches out into the plains, and then it will go back down. But, um, you know, you get the sense that it was a, a, a very shallow, almost, like I say, walk up, you could walk across it. Of course, there were bridges across it, but they weren't what we see today. Um, when they built the barge canal, they they had to go through, once they got the dams in place, they had to dredge it down to 12 feet. And uh, later, they would have to dredge it down to 14 feet. So what you see today is sort of a, you know, a little bit of a glimpse. And like I say, during the wintertime, mm-hmm. you get a better feeling for what the what the river looked like. Well, certainly, we still have floods. You know, I'm just sort of uh, racking my brain. I remember I, I did a radio show in Amsterdam from 2004 to 2014. And in that 10-year span, we had a number of flooding incidents along the Mohawk, one in 2006, as I recall, that was primarily centered up in Canajoharie, Fort Plain, and Fonda. And then 2011, and this would have been in September, with uh, the tropical storms Irene and Lee. And what you said about the uh, the uh, lock dam at, at Randall Yost um, with the debris building up. I remember driving home. I live in Glenville, New York. Or it's near Scotia. And so I'm driving home from Amsterdam along the uh, the north side of the river. 
and at the Rotterdam Junction um, bridge dam, there's all this debris piled up, you know, little houses and things like that. And I thought, how are we ever going to get out of this? And But eventually we did, and the river went back into its normal thing. I don't know if there's really not a question there, uh, Michael, but... Maybe. Well, the, 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 the 2011 storm was unique because you had... You had tropical storm Lee followed your followed you know, well actually you had Hurricane Irene first and tropical storm Lee and it was like a one-two punch. I mean the first one came in and d- dropped all this rain and and just sort of saturated everything and then tropical storm Lee came in and and that was very much like the storm of 1938. It came up from the Atlantic seaboard and crossed into New York State and sort of settled over the Catskills in the central, in the valley, the Mohawk Valley, and just dumped all this rain. And there there's these huge parallels between the, the storm of 1938, which almost wiped out four dams. They, the state was fearful that four of those dams were going to be swept away. And I remember in 2011 that the state had the same concern mm-hmm. with the same dams. They, um, they, there's so much debris, if you recall, that were piled up against those. The, the the biggest sort of knock on these dams is they're intended to be stored up out of the way so all that debris can flow down the river when you have a big flood like that. But if you happen to be delayed in any way and debris starts building up on the dams, they're impossible to raise. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the one of the challenges the state has today is is sort of modifying the dams to make them quicker reacting to storms. And you see today now, you know, just last year, when they had a big storm, they will they will raise those dams and get the river back down to mm-hmm. its, its level. No, um, but when all those when all that debris washed up against and got caught up, there's nothing they can do. They just have to mm-hmm. wait it out. Mm-hmm. And it, you might recall that there is a huge, I mean, just absolutely thousands, millions of tons of sediment washed out from around the uh, from around the dams, and they washed out the railroad tracks. I mean, there was just a, a absolute mm-hmm. mess and. The parallels between 1938 and, and 2011 are just absolutely striking. Now, I'm sure you know uh, Brian Stratton and the is it the Canal Commission. Absolutely. That op, you know that oversees the canal. Who is the problem? Is or one of the issues is whatever repairs or are made to the canals in New York State seem to be supported by the state, or is that not true anymore? Do they get federal money for it in some way? No, the uh, the, the the sort of the unique thing about the uh, the, the state canals is they are state canals. Um, this this was a massive undertaking. They have always been state canals since the early days in 1817 when they built the Erie Canal. Um, all the canals out in the Ohio River Valley or uh, out that way are all federal canals. They're all overseen by the Army Corps of Engineers, whereas the state canals are just overseen by the the state canal or the state people and they're paid for by the taxpayers. So. There's no federal money that comes in. It's 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 always put onto mm-hmm. the taxpayers, and it's it's protected under the New York State Constitution that we have to have a uh, we keep the canal system going. That's why in all these times when they talk about you know well we should do away with them they're very expensive, they would actually have to have a constitutional convention and change the constitution in order to get rid of the canals. Mm. But I mean this system of the movable dams has been in place for over a century now. I mean Absolutely. Is it time? I mean is it still workable, still usable do you think? 
they are, I know they are actively working on making ways to make these dams more responsive. Um, you know, they, right now to, to raise each dam, it's a whole team of people that have to go out. They have to raise these pans one at a time. They have these uh, electric winches. There's two of them on each dam and they can go out and they raise each dam very slowly. Um, I, I think there's plans underway that they could, you know, make them all maybe mechanical so they would raise and lower much quicker. Um, and that would make them more responsive. I would hate to see them ever take them down because they are engineering marvels, um, but they may have to modify them to, to make them more responsive to like climate change, all these rains that we're getting. If you were to canalize a river today, what, would you use this system or there, there better systems have been developed? There, there, these, these dams, bridge dams went out of favor and, by shortly after we built them, it seems like um, they they were used in here and there, but there there's no more of them around. We only find them on the on the barge canal. Um, now they have inflatable dams. They have these these gigantic steel plates that will lie in the river bottom, and they use these uh, inflatable bags, and they just sort of puff up and they raise the dam. Um, they have sector dams they could use. There are many other technologies, current technologies mm-hmm. that would be more responsive to, um, to the flooding and stuff. Um, you know, I would, I would always hate to see that happen. It would be a major undertaking for the, for the Mohawk Valley to rebuild all these dams and, and redo this. But they, um, you know, so I hope that that plan never comes. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I'd hate to see that those dams go. Well, maybe as we're getting close to the end of the podcast, a little, Trivia on the bridge dams. I was fascinated to read in your book that you figure, you know, engineers are very factual people. So they've numbered the dams. They've also numbered the locks. But the numbers don't correspond. Right, exactly. Because you have dams, you're counting the dams. So you're counting the dams from the beginning of the the Mohawk River, which is down by uh, Crescent and Cohoes. And so there's bridge, you know, one, two, three, working their way up. And then they count the locks. And the locks actually start at Waterford. So you have the dams in the Mohawk Valley, which are started right at the, um, the almost basically where the Northway goes across. There's your first dam. And then you have the locks starting at the Hudson River. So you have I think six locks in there before you even get to a dam. So, so it's kind of confusing. It's uh, everybody just says, you know, the dam at lock 13. Nobody ever says, you know, bridge or dam nine, unless right, you're a real right, canal right. geek. And very few of them, like Rotterdam Junction and Tribes Hill, are they the only ones that actually have a, a road over the bridge? Yep. They were, they were all designed. And this is one of the selling points was that by building these by building these bridge dams you would have roadways across the the river but the only problem the only spot that it actually makes sense is um is at Rotterdam Junction where you're you know, we have route 103 going over it and at Tribes Hill everywhere else there was a bridge nearby like in Amsterdam there they didn't need a bridge down in Cranesville and you didn't need a bridge up there in Guy Park so there's didn't make any sense to put them up there so so these are the only two spots and if you go across them today they're very narrow um openings you know they they're not really suited to the right, modern traffic right. the modern size yeah. of vehicles not not my favorite bridge to cross <laughs> well, there was a suspension bridge there at uh, Tribes Hill that they had to get rid of. And so they just looked at it and said, well, here's a bridge. Let's use that. Now, Michael, we're almost out of time. Tell us how much the book costs and how you get it. 
<laughs> we're um, I'm, I'm very new to this, so I uh, um, the book is twenty dollars plus three dollars shipping, and actually the best way I've been selling them right now is just um, by people sending me messages saying I want to get them. They go to my Facebook account and they just say, you know, I want to get this. I am trying to find um, some gift shops in the in the Mohawk Valley. Um, you know that would that would maybe carry this. Sure, um, it's a very it has a very limited audience. I, I realize I can think there's of not many people who are interested in it. Two places uh, there's my uh, friend Dan Weaver with the Bookhound in Amsterdam, and then the folks up in Herkimer that have that gift shop right by the Erie Canal. Right. Yeah. No, I have to look into those. But the, right now, the best your best way to do it is just go onto my Facebook and send me a note, and I'll I'll mail you out a copy. <laughs> All right. And I believe you say some of the proceeds will go to the Canal Societies. Right. The the American Canal Society and the Canal Society in New York okay. State. I, I extensively used uh, images from their collection, and um, I don't want to get into the mess sure. of you know claiming a profit. So yeah, they all go to that. Michael Riley's book is Bridge Dams on the Mohawk. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.